Hello everyone and welcome to this new session of Memcast. I have Dr. Nicholas Wong with me today, one of our IDU consultants here at the Leicester Royal Infirmary, and we're going to speak about HIV. Thanks again for having me, Christina. So I thought we would cover a few basic overview topics regarding HIV today. It's not something which you can go explain all of in the course of a 10 to 15 minute podcast, but we can go through some fundamental first principles a bit about the CD4 counts and a few tips on knowing what's important about the drugs. And then I'll mention some of the opportunistic infections and the common presentations you're likely to see on the acute take. So getting straight into it, I would like to encourage everyone listening to this podcast to please routinely screen people for HIV. For those of you working in the larger cities in the East Midlands, like Leicester, for example, these are high prevalence areas for HIV. We have an HIV incidence rate of 3.6 per thousand, give or take. And anything above two per thousand warrants universal screening. You could make a huge difference to someone's long-term health and prognosis if you catch them early before the immune system has been completely wiped out. And this saves the NHS a ton of money in terms of hospital admissions, investigations, etc. Results in much better long-term outcomes for the patient. And so there is no reason not to test these people, regardless of what you think their level of risk is. So let's get straight into it. A common misconception is that patients these days are largely dying of PCP or cryptococcal meningitis. The biggest killer of HIV patients in the UK today is cardiovascular disease, followed by end-stage liver disease. If me and my colleagues are doing our jobs right in the outpatient setting, we are managing their HIV adequately, their viral loads get suppressed, their immune system stays strong, and so they die of the same illnesses that everybody else does. This is thanks to effective treatment, which is much better than how it was 15, 20 years ago. And I'll touch on how much better these drugs are in terms of tolerability shortly. So when you're thinking about a patient with HIV, trying to assess what's wrong with them, or discussing the case with a specialist, the two most fundamental bits of information that I would want to know if you're concerned about somebody is the CD4 count and the HIV viral load. What is normal in someone who doesn't have HIV is between 500 to 1500 in an adult. Once you drop your CD4 count threshold to below 350, you are at least moderately immunosuppressed. Now, this used to be a previous threshold for starting antiretroviral drugs, but these days, as soon as the diagnosis is made, in the absence of any other contraindications, we encourage starting the medicine as soon as the patient is ready to take them. Below 200, that's when opportunistic infections are far more likely. The term AIDS has largely been replaced by the term advanced HIV, and that's how we refer to these patients. So these are the ones who tend to be on prophylactic drugs, such as septrin against pneumocystis pneumonia, and tend to require more intensive follow-up and monitoring to ensure that they stay out of trouble. The viral load is important for us in the outpatient setting because it indicates as to whether the patient is suppressed with their treatment as to what their adherence is like. Naturally, someone who is not on medication will have an uncontrolled viral load, and this correlates well with infectivity. The current mantra that we're pushing for our patients in the outpatient setting is the concept of U equals U. So you may see the slogan around the gum clinics and the HIV clinics in your hospitals. What this means is undetectable equals untransmissible. So someone who is taking their treatment properly with a suppressed viral load cannot pass on HIV to other people. 
So the UK is actually one of the best countries in the world in terms of achieving WHO targets for having patients diagnosed on treatment and fully suppressed. And so this has significant implications in the long run as we develop an aging population cohort with HIV. Moving on a bit now towards how to approach someone who's come in on AMU or in the A&E department with a background of HIV, you want to know their CD4 count. Most of these patients will be quite well informed and should be able to tell you what drugs they're taking and what their most recent CD4 count was. If they don't, the next question is, who looks after your HIV normally? Is it the gum services locally, or is it the tertiary infectious diseases centre down the road? Clarify this with the patient, and get in touch with these services so that you know what medicines they're taking to minimise any interruptions to treatment. With regards to treatment, I know there are quite a lot of us that probably are not as familiar with antiretroviral therapy. What would you recommend? How do we get ourselves informed in the middle of the night when we don't have a readily available gum service or ID unit in our hospital about the patient's treatment and prescribing it? So if it's three in the morning, they can usually wait a few hours. Most modern drugs these days are a bit more tolerant if you're a couple of hours late with your dose. The older drugs from 20-25 years ago were much less forgiving in this regard, and even with totally perfect adherence you could get resistance breakthrough. They are better these days in terms of you won't automatically develop resistance after missing one dose, but we still try to discourage missing treatment doses whenever possible. So ring them up first thing in the morning the next day, once you've figured out who's looking after them normally, and you should be able to get the information you need. If you know that someone's come in taking HIV drugs, if the patient can't tell you what it's supposed to be, then get in contact with their specialist so you find out. Also, it's worth highlighting to other healthcare professionals, such as the nursing staff who give the drugs, and to the pharmacy teams, that the patient is on antiretrovirals, so that they get their drugs on time, they get dispensed, and someone is looking out for drug interactions. One thing I really would like to draw your attention to is the possibility of drug interactions, because even very common, supposedly harmless drugs can cause serious problems with certain HIV medicines. You may think of something like calcium supplements, a steroid inhaler, or a statin, all fairly basic things, not causing much in the way of serious harm, but because some of the HIV medicines are such potent liver enzyme inhibitors, or or inducers, as the case may be. If you were to take the example of a simple budesonide inhaler for asthma, for example, when you combine this with certain protease inhibitors, you will boost the steroid levels about 40,000-fold, and so you run the risk of triggering an Addisonian crisis if you were to abruptly stop one of those drugs. A really useful source of information to find out about drug interactions is the HIV Drug Interactions website run by the University of Liverpool. If you were to Google HIV drug interactions, it's the first thing that comes up, and it provides an easy-to-use checker to ensure whatever you plan to prescribe the patient will not interact with whatever the patient is already taking. Run through the different drug classes when it comes to HIV, there will be a lot of names which will be a little bit obscure to most non-specialists. You will probably be able to recognize what they're for because some of them will come in combination tablets, or if you ask the patient, they'll be able to say, yeah, I take that for my HIV. The common categories for those of you studying for exams include the NRTIs, or nucleoside analog reverse transcriptase inhibitors, non-nucleoside analog reverse transcriptase inhibitors, protease inhibitors, and integrase inhibitors. 
While there are a couple of other categories, those are quite fine prints generally used as salvage therapy. So the NRTIs make up the backbone of treatment, so we tend to use two of these in combination with a third agent, depending on patient's individual risk factors, past medical history, and viral load. NNRTIs, for example, nevirapine ifavirenz, aren't quite as commonly used as they used to be because of neuropsychiatric and severe cutaneous manifestations in terms of side effects. These are also fairly brittle in terms of developing resistance to the drug with poor adherence, and so we prefer other agents by and large these days. Protease inhibitors are notorious amongst the older generation of patients for causing a lot of unpleasant side effects, such as persistent nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And this was absolutely the case a decade or two ago. The more modern protease inhibitors are actually very robust in terms of preventing resistance developing, and are generally very well tolerated. Drug interactions do tend to be the most problematic with this class of drug, however. Finally, I'd like to touch on integrase inhibitors, for example, raltegravir, dolotegravir, as this is one of the most favoured group of agents these days in terms of the third drug being chosen. So these tend to be, again, very quick at reducing patients' viral loads, and in the case of dolotegravir and bictegravir, again, have very high genetic barriers to resistance, and so are more forgiving if the patient is forgetful with their medicines. Moving on now, we can cover a little bit about the common presentations in terms of opportunistic infections. I think it's really worth bearing in mind, if someone comes in with HIV and you suspect they may be immunosuppressed, there are a lot of clues that can be gathered just by looking at them in detail. So a detailed physical examination may reveal things like molluscum on the face, severe oral thrush, a general picture of wasting, purple lesions in the hard palate or on the skin anywhere suggestive of kaposis. So keep an open mind and do pay meticulous attention when examining these patients. I think the most sensible way of looking at opportunistic infections would be to break it up by organ system. By far the most common one we see tends to be respiratory, and obviously pneumocystis pneumonia is the commonest opportunistic or AIDS-defining condition that we see in the modern era. Of course, patients with HIV can present with tuberculosis, which is also extremely common, and your common or garden bacterial pneumonia as well. A few other viruses can cause disseminated infections, such as CMV pneumonitis, and you can get a couple of other fungi as well, such as cryptococcus causing lung disease. Maintain a low threshold for imaging, regardless of presentation, in patients with low CD4 counts, because they tend to have overlapping pathologies. Anyone with a CD4 count below 200 should be on PCP prophylaxis, but adherence can be a problem with this at times. By far the most dangerous or immediately life-threatening consequences of opportunistic infections tend to be with the neurological problems. So consider what sort of presentation you're looking at. It tends to be a subacute sort of appearance, but things like cerebral toxoplasmosis, for example, will manifest with focal neurological abnormalities developing over a period of time, ultimately leading to multiple space-occupying lesions appearing on neuroimaging, while others may present with an ongoing headache, fever, and stiff neck for some weeks, which is the subacute presentation typically associated with cryptococcal meningitis. If you see a patient who is unwell with HIV and a low CD4 count, 
I would recommend a very low threshold for discussing with local infectious diseases units, as these people need to be thoroughly investigated by the appropriate specialists, and we are generally very happy to take over their care. So, for example, if a patient comes to the hospital, is unwell, we contact the infectious disease unit in our region, what can we do before sending them across? We can get an up-to-date CD4 count, we can start them on treatment. Is there any other specific thing that we should consider? So, if they aren't already taking treatment for HIV, so let's say they, it's a new diagnosis that's ended up on your front door and they are immunocompromised, do not start HIV treatment. This is not a call for a non-specialist to make because starting HIV treatment prematurely in the presence of certain opportunistic infections can have very severe consequences. So the general rule is to identify and treat any opportunistic infections present first, be it TB, pneumocystis, cryptococcus, etc., and then worry about sorting out the HIV, because it's the OI that's going to kill the patient, fundamentally. What about someone that's already on HIV treatment and gets an opportunistic infection? What do we do with the HIV treatment? Carry on as it is? Yeah, that's right. So if they're already taking something, unless you think they've got some sort of life-threatening drug reaction to it, carry on with it and allow the specialists to make their assessments to figure out what is wrong. And then we can tinker with the HIV notes as appropriate. Another thing I I can point out is, even if they haven't come in with an HIV-related illness per se, if you take an HIV patient who's come in with a stroke, for the sake of argument, and can't swallow, then again, we're happy to discuss the case because we may be able to come up with other suggestions for what to do with their meds. Also, we may be able to alter the antiretroviral regimen to something less cardiotoxic as well. So if they have HIV, they may need to be under us if they have an opportunistic infection, or they may be under the care of a different primary specialty, but it doesn't hurt to give us a ring if you're not sure what to do with them. Okay, great. And what about the prognosis? If someone gets an opportunistic infection, what sort of prognosis are we dealing with? A challenging question to answer. So it does depend quite a lot on the exact opportunistic infection the patient has, as well as their own individual fitness, level of function, nutritional status, etc. Certainly, we've had patients do brilliantly, as in they pitch up cachectic with a raging fever with a CD4 count of zero, and yet six, eight months later, they're walking around back at work, putting on weight, doing brilliantly. At the other end of the spectrum, unfortunately, we've had some tragic cases of people presenting with late diagnoses, such as a student in his 20s who pitched up with cryptococcal meningitis after feeling unwell for four weeks, and he did not survive because of the late diagnosis. If he had been caught and screened earlier, who knows what might have happened. Very good to know. Thank you so much. Anything else you would want to add? I guess in the long run, someone living with HIV today should expect a normal life expectancy in keeping with someone who doesn't have HIV, provided that they adhere to their treatment. So it's important to emphasize when counseling people, when breaking the diagnosis, etc., that it While it is a lifelong incurable condition, it can be managed like any other chronic illness and is no longer the death sentence that it was 30 years ago. Great. Thank you so much.